When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. This is Larry Mantle. Join me for our next Film Week screening, Boogie Nights, 1970s L.A.'s porn industry in transition. Saturday night, July 27th at the Theater at Ace Hotel. Tickets at kpcc.org slash in person. From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Our critics this week review Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. New film from writer-director Quentin Tarantino stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. Also, Skin, biographical drama that stars Jamie Bell. And we'll talk about the Macedonian documentary Honeyland, among other films, all coming up on Film Week. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. And I hope to see you Saturday night at the Theater at Ace Hotel, downtown Los Angeles, for the screening of Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, the tremendous ensemble cast. One of the members of the cast later with us this hour on Film Week. Nina Hartley will talk with her. Uh, but uh, we sure hope you can join us Saturday night, Theater at Ace Hotel. Tickets at kpcc.org slash in person. Our critics this week are Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Cinema Guide. Synagogues.com. Also with us, film critic Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day podcast. We begin with Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie star in the film. Tim, what did you think? Uh, well, I love this film. And, and it is a film, by the way. Uh, it's digitally projected, but it's a film, shot on film the way Quentin does. Uh, in just about every aspect ratio, a lot of one three three, the old television aspect ratio, because a good chunk of it's about these nineteen te- fifties television se- series, some one eight five, but mostly it's in two three nine, big wide screen, blowing blowing it up to seventy millimeter in some places. So a movie about Hollywood that's made the way a movie is made, gotta love it right there. And we wander through this fairly languid story. Quintus is taking his time telling the story that is not about uh, the, the, the Sharon Tate killing. It, it really isn't. Backdrop, this is playing. And he's, he's doing this thing where he re-envisions all this stuff, but we're really just hanging out with these two guys. Brad Pitt being so Pitt. 
He's just being so petty, it's insane. <laughs> and Leonardo DiCaprio having a lot of fun with his character. He's this actor, and Brad Penn is his stuntman, his, his double for all the stuff that he has to do. And he's insecure, Leonardo DiCaprio, about his skills and his talent. One of the things that Quentin does in this movie that I like a lot is that the actor that Brad is playing in the movie is actually very, very good. And then he simply dabbles all of this wonderful Hollywood material around for us. Larry, you lifelong, Christy lifelong. I arrived in 1990. In 1990, much of Hollywood was still the same as it had been in 1969, which is when the film takes place. So uh, there was still that dirt parking lot behind the Cinerama Dome and all of that kind of stuff. The the Vogue Theater out over the front, front, all of that was still there. So for me, this is just wonderful. I'm looking at this corner chair keeping yucca or whatever it is in Hollywood. I got mugged in that corner. (laughs) (laughs) 1994, and so thoroughly enjoying all of that and, and, and this sort of Hollywood movie-making thing that he's doing. And then we get to the crux of the movie, and he pulls the ripcord. And I got to tell you, if you didn't like anything else in the previous two hours, the last act of this movie is worth all of the rest of it. When he pulls the ripcord and it goes bananas, it is just so much fun. The, the theater that I was in, people were just being outrageous. It was just absolutely outrageous. That's how much fun I had with this movie. Now, if you know little neat things, there's a sequence in the movie where Leo goes off to Italy to make these Italian movies, and he's yeah. working for this director named Sergio Corbucci. And Sergio is a real director who, of course, created the Django franchise. Uh, and, and they just do all of these beautiful posters. And, these, it's just, and he's playing with all kinds of fun so stuff So much like insider that. stuff, as he does so well. Yeah, yeah, and it's just right there. And if you know it, it's just all the more fun. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Christy? See, I'm not sure how I feel about the ending. I'm still working through it. Mm. But I loved everything that came before. Because this is every inch a Tarantino film in so many ways in that it is obsessively authentically detailed to capture the look and the vibe and the costumes of the time. But it's almost like a a heightened kind of romanticized vision of that period in time in Los Angeles in film. It's funny, there was so much coverage when Tarantino transformed sections of Hollywood Boulevard and the area around the Cinerama Dome to look as if they did back in 1969, you don't really see it. Like, you see Brad and Leo driving their car down the street, but it's all just backdrop to immerse you and make you feel like you were truly there. It's every inch of Tarantino film in that it is talky, and it just luxuriates in the language and and the and the obsessive minutia of the period. But it's warmer. It's warmer and more affectionate than we often see from Tarantino. I, I think quite often we when we think of his films, we think of a great deal of violence. And yes, there is violence scattered throughout. Um, but a lot of it is kind of over the top. In whether it whether it's in a jokey way, in a jokey way, I mean, like in the in the films that you know Leo is making as this actor, Rick Dalton. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's a it's a really affectionate kind of nostalgic wistful return to a time that was and a time that could have been, yeah. and it's a period of, of flux culturally between this idea of an old school kind of Hollywood glamour. You, you know, you see Leo and Brad hanging out a lot at Musso and Frank's, <laughs> and and everything that that suggests of that kind of Hollywood, but. His time is passing, his time is fading, and this younger, wilder, freer, almost more dangerous vibe in the form of Charles Manson and all his girls, that's coming into LA, that's coming into Hollywood, and you feel that flux, and you feel that Leo's character is on the demise, on the decline, rather, while Sharon Tate... You know, she's on the way up. And there's a wonderful sequence where Margot Robbie goes into a theater in Westwood and watches herself, you know, as Sharon Sharon Tate Tate. in The Wrecking Crew. And 
everything flashes across her face as every little sight gag and, and joke, it really hits with the audience. And she realizes, oh, my God, like this is working. And, and there's such sweet nostalgia and sadness in that moment of possibility there for her. Yeah. I liked it a lot for a long time, but I'm still working through that mm. last act that you thought was fun and oh. exciting. You, you <laughs> mentioned about the warmth because to me, um movie we, we uh, showed as part of uh, our Film Week screening series, Jackie Brown was loaded with warmth. Mm-hmm. And and he can do that very well, mm-hmm. uh, and and so I'm anxious to see how it how it plays out in this yeah. film. You sense the chemistry between the two leads. Oh, they're tremendous. They are both at the absolute top of their game, and it's such a knowing performance from them both in terms of what their on screen persona are like. There's a moment where Brad Pitt climbs onto the roof of. of Leonardo DiCaprio's house and takes his shirt off in the heat to fix the broken TV antenna. And I was like, yes, Brad, <laughs> Me too. do that. Way to hold it down, but, Brad. But, but Leo, Leo is playing a jokey version of himself, too. Yeah. But, but also there's such sadness. He has such great range to show here. This might be his best work ever. And then there are, you know, and they have both starred in Tarantino films before. And there are so many little callbacks mm-hmm. to other Tarantino films. Like you've got Rumor Willis, Bruce Willis's daughter in a small part. You've got Maya Uma Thurman's daughter in a small part. They're all these little bitty pieces. So if you love Tarantino, you will love all of that stuff. Um, but that is going to be divisive, I suspect, in a lot of ways as well. You, you think? Uh, yeah. Oh, I, that, that, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe my affection is, is, is outsized. You know, I know him a little bit. And, 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 and I look at this movie, affection, absolutely. He loves Sharon Tate. He loves these people, mm-hmm. Steve McQueen and Jay Sebring. You can tell that he's thought about these people, that he's considered their lives and what would have been different uh, about Hollywood. You can tell that he loves this city. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, L.A., Hollywood gets poked a lot in movies. You know, uh, he's not poking at all. For instance, there's no smog in this movie. Uh, now, I'm sorry. Nineteen. <laughs> 69, you could not see the mountains from Hollywood Boulevard. I promise you, you probably could not. Yeah, you were here, Larry. You would know, but you couldn't see them in 1990 yeah, when there, I got here. There, there was haze to the Hollywood scene. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it that way. Once upon a time in Hollywood, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. It's rated R and in wide release. The frame took a tour of L.A. with the location scout for the movie, along with the film's production designer, you can hear that tour by visiting uh, our Film Week page. We have a link to it uh, to hear that conversation. Uh, A white supremacist falls in love and decides to change his life in the new biographical drama Skin. Jamie Bell and Danielle McDonald star. The film is written and directed by uh, Guy Nativ. Christy? So Guy Nativ won the Oscar this past year for his live action short, which also was called Skin which also was about clashes between white supremacists and and black activists, which also had to do with the way that um, how you wear tattoos on the outside is a brash signal of what you feel on the inside and how those kinds of racist tattoos can really be a a great intimidation factor. Um, And Danielle McDonald happens to be in both films. This is not a feature-length version of that short skin. So if you guys saw that and you think, oh, I've seen this story, no, you have not seen this story. Um, But there was already a documentary about this guy, Brian Widener, and um, it's about how he was a leader in a white supremacist group called the the Vinlanders Social Club in... Here they're in Ohio. In real life, it was in Indiana. And um, he 
does atrocious things. He does awful things. He he was lost and destitute and was taken in by the leaders of this group who, you know, you see chillingly prey upon young people like him and make them feel like they're a part of something and then just twist their minds. Um, they're played by Bill Camp and Vera Farmiga, and they're absolutely chilling and horrifying here. Um, but Jamie Bell is this guy who increasingly begins to doubt his beliefs, and, and he hey, he's all in. I mean, he's got massive facial and neck tattoos everywhere that would make it really difficult for him to live any other kind of life. You know, you, you can't go and sell shoes at Nordstrom with, you know, with a look like that. And uh, it's about how he meets a woman played by Danielle McDonald. She has three little girls and he begins to see for himself that a different kind of family life is possible and a different way to thrive and find happiness and fulfillment is possible. And the difficulty of getting out of that life. Um, it is uh Jamie Bell's tremendous in this. He's physically transformed himself. He's really, really bulked up here. Um, unrecognizable, mm. I would say, even. And uh, there's a great deal of tension, a, a lot of use of handheld camera, a lot of intimate close-ups to feel the the struggle of what is going on in, in this young man's life. And alternates between that and more recent clips of him trying to get the tattoos removed. And those are those are glossier and more detached and more clinical. So there's a c- couple of different kinds of looks in this film here. But I liked it. Very powerful film, uh, if, if a bit repetitive uh, in, in what we are actually seeing happening, the way the, the, the way he keeps falling out uh, with these people and this uh, Danielle McDonald and her daughter, and they go back and forth and back and forth. Those, uh, the process of watching the tattoos be removed, which he shoots in these extremely tight close-ups, right? Uh, I, I guess it's a laser that they're using to remove the tattoos. And I have no reason to believe that we weren't actually watching this process, which is apparently extremely painful. Sure sounds like it. Uh, <laughs> and, and he had them all over his face. And every now and again, uh, after we see uh, something horrible that he does, uh, we cut to that. And we see what this person is willing to go through to have this actually removed from his body. Uh, I found that extremely engaging. And it kept me sympathetic to his character. I, I'm not sure that I would have been particularly sympathetic to his character as, as, as much as I was over the course of the movie had he not reminded me every now and again how how painful this process is and that this guy is actually going to go through. Luke, uh, the fellow who plays Luke Cage, played Luke Cage. Uh, in Mike Coulter. Mike Coulter yeah. uh, plays this black activist. And this is what he does. He finds these guys who are seemingly unredeemable and he figures out a way to redeem them. Also, there's, there's a scene early on where Bill Camp is addressing all of his followers and talking about Asians and blacks and other minorities using much more offensive language than that. And he suggests, why don't they all just leave? Yeah. And the phrasing of that is so chillingly relevant and sadly so that this may seem like, oh, this is a decade ago. But no, this is absolutely now. The film is Skin, Jamie Bell, Danielle McDonald star, Guy Nativ, the writer-director. It's rated R. You can see it at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. The Macedonian documentary Honeyland is directed by Tamara uh, Kotevska and Jubimor Stefanov. Uh, Christy, what do you think? This is one of the best movies of the year. I was completely blown away by it. I, over and over again, while I was watching it, was asking myself, how did they get that shot? How did they achieve that sense of intimacy with these people for so long? It's a documentary about Macedonian beekeepers. Yeah. Which is, this does not sound like a very exciting, sexy topic, but it is shot with such love and such warmth and such affection for this woman, um, Atija, who has been doing a very old-fashioned, methodical way of 
harvesting bees and honey. She's been doing it forever. She treks across these barren expanses in Macedonia. And she's so good at it and so calm and so sweet-natured. And she sings to them and they never sting her. It's like they know. They know that she means well. And it's her and her elderly mother who can't even walk or do anything at this point. And this family moves in next door. And they're also farmers. And they're terrible oh. farmers, and they're also greedy. It's like the worst of all worlds. And so it's, it's a very specific cultural look at sort of a, a larger topic of, of greed. Yeah, it's an exquisite film. So beautiful. She's quite the character. You watch this movie, and it's a documentary, but you, as you watch it, you feel like you're watching a narrative film. Because uh, you, you ask yourself, could this possibly could this possibly not be written? But it's not. Um, they 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 shot over the course of all four seasons. Uh, that family that moves in next door, nomadic. Oh my god, with those little kids. Oh my god, that was happenstance. They did not expect that family to move in. They came out of nowhere and they make the movie. Wow, Honeyland, the film, uh, Macedonian documentary, the film unrated at Limley's Royal Theater in West L.A. Coming up, we'll hear about the documentary The Queen, as well as the documentary Mike Wallace is here. Back in one minute on Film Week. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. We invite you to get your tickets to Saturday night screening of Boogie Nights. Written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, the film that really put him on the map. Coming out of his smaller feature, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights with its extraordinary ensemble cast. Julianne Moore, Mark Wahlberg, Burt Reynolds, William H. Macy... Um, so many great actors that are part of that film. And we'll show it Saturday night, 7 o'clock, Theater at Ace Hotel. Tickets at kpcc.org slash in person. I'm joined this week by film critics Christy Lemire and Tim Cogshell. Uh, Tim's going to start us off on the documentary The Queen, which is directed by Frank Simon. Tim? Yeah, yeah. This is a fantastic doc. Um, uh, uh, mostly shot in 1966 or 1967, which is interesting given you know, our, our, our Hollywood thing. We're doing this whole little period thing right here. So um, there was this contest for drag queens uh, that was held in New York. And, and we watch uh, fly on the wall style as all of these uh, gay men, mostly gay men, uh, arrive in New York and practice and participate in this contest for drag queens. And they are just fantastic. Characters. Talk about characters. They're all characters. They sing, and, and a lot of it is performance, but then again, that's what they do. They're performing. So, And we see them as they transform themselves into these women uh, to perform in this particular contest. Frank is an interesting guy. The guy that directed this film, he has an association with Roman Polanski. Uh, he made a documentary uh, uh, about Roman Polanski's making of his film Macbeth in 1971. Um, uh, here, he really just left his camera. And again, this is 1966, so he's probably, I'm, think, I'm thinking, working with a 16 millimeter, maybe an Aeroflex or something like that, kind of a small camera. He just lets his camera float around the room, uh, the bedrooms and the uh, the performance spaces with all of these men. Now, it's, we, we get to know these men, these, these, these ladies, these queens quite well. They tell us stories, beautiful stories, and every single one of them is just a storyteller. Uh, and, and it's just, you, you just get captivated and swept up in it, and I just thought it was fascinating and so much fun. 1966-67. Was the film released at, back when it was made? Do you know? I, don't, I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. So this yeah. is a re-release. This is the 40th anniversary. 50 years later. 50, yes. Yeah. Um, I can do math, sure. <laughs> um, so... 
it's fun in a kitschy kind of knowing way quite often because as Tim says, these these performers are all just total hams and they're having so much fun. And that's enjoyable, you know, all this time before RuPaul's Drag Race. We have, we have these pioneers here. But what I enjoyed even more than that was just watching them sit around and talk about you know, being drafted and how they dealt with that and what they said to the draft board, you know, and and, and various social concerns they had about dating or talking to their parents or growing up in the South in a very conservative place and knowing at age five that, you know, one, one gentleman knew he was gay. And so the, the quiet, intimate truth of the film to me was the most powerful part of all. And then of course the clothes and the, the, mm. the feather boas and the earrings and all that, that's great too. And they're all hilarious. But the, the intimacy of that and the honesty of that really captured me. Of I'm course, curious how close the fashions from the queen were to once upon a time in <laughs> Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Of course, this is before Paris is burning. This is before yeah. Stonewall, I believe. Uh, yeah, so, so, you know, these, watching these, these men get to be themselves as they, they can only be when they're with each other completely and totally. That was just a wonderful thing to see. The Queen, the documentary from 1968, Frank Simon directed. It's at Lemley's Glendale and the Frida Cinema in Santa Ana. It's unrated. Uh, the documentary Mike Wallace is here is directed by Avi Belkin. It looks at the career of the longtime 60 Minutes newsman. What you're about to witness is strictly personal. A direct, undiluted, unrehearsed, uncensored interview. My role is that of a reporter. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Mike Wallace. I'm Mike Wallace. He was tough as nails, never took orders from anybody. People didn't ask tough questions back then. You invented that genre. You're not answering the specific question that I put. So funny to hear talk about the tough questions because, of course, Mike Wallace also um, did entertainment television programs, which were totally softball yeah. kind of celebrity sort of puff pieces. Christy, what do you think of Mike Wallace's year? It's terrific. It's so informative. But, yeah, you're right. The um, the commercials and the funny stuff that he did earlier in his career were really the inspiration behind him creating the Mike Wallace persona, quote unquote, that we came to know over 50 plus years in television. He came to CBS News and he felt like he was a lightweight by comparison. And so he overcompensated and acted like he was super tough to gain the respect of people like Walter Cronkite. And and that's kind of fascinating because we know him now to be that person. This is a tremendous wealth of archival footage of interviews he did with everybody from like the Ayatollah Khomeini and Vladimir Putin and Malcolm X to Betty Davis and Barbara Streisand and Salvador Dali and... I feel like he's the last of a breed of that kind of interviewer because so often now, not you, of course, Larry, but so often now interviewers want to be buddies with the celebrities that they are talking to. They want the schmoozy Instagram moment with them. And he just did not care. He did not want to be liked. He wanted to get the answer. He wanted the power of, of asking that question. And it's so exciting to see, even though he admittedly was not the most pleasant person to work with, one of the earliest questions we see when he's on the receiving end of, of the interviewing is Morley Safer asks him, why were you such a, and I can't say the word that he says, and he totally acknowledges that he was hard to work with. He acknowledges a lot of personal things that perhaps he didn't earlier on in his career about depression and about his marriages. So I found it really eye-opening. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. There's a, a device that they use. In, most of the interviews, of course, were done during the uh, one through three aspect ratio of television, the old aspect ratio. So the interviews are more or less square. 
So what they do in this film is they do two frames, left and right frames, so that we can see uh, Mike Wallace and whoever he's talking to at the same time, as opposed to what it would have been yeah. when we were watching. They would have been cutting between. But we can see them both at the same time very often here. Lovely device that allows us to always be looking at Mike. Um, Mike, uh, I'm glad he was not my father. <laughs> um, he was a terrible father. He admits it. So this is not a, 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 you know, an unvarnished portrait. He was really just a terrible uh, And father. as people who worked with him yeah. will tell you, he was extremely yeah. difficult yeah. to work with. Uh, uh, he didn't really have a relationship with his son, Chris Wallace, you know, who became president of CBS, ironically, uh, at all. Uh, his son was basically raised by another man. They didn't have a relationship until, about 13, four, until he was about 14, 15 years Chris old. Wallace Chris Wallace at Fox, 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 Fox News. He's in this He's briefly, been, and I wish there were more of him. There's a quick moment where the two of them are on set together for an interview, and I wish there was more from Chris Wallace you know, describing what is that like to be this man's son and to follow in that same path? Although, yeah. although I kind of understand, I kind of think I know why he's not. An, I don't. I don't think he's particularly crazy about his dad. Um, um, uh, one of the interviews is with Bill O'Reilly, mm-hmm. uh, and Bill. It's funny because Bill O'Reilly calls him a dinosaur. Which is just hysterical to me because Mike Wallace, I invented what you do and you're calling me a dinosaur <laughs> and you've taken what I invented and mutated it into this thing that you do. That's not what I do at all. Well, what Mike Wallace was so good at when he did an interview, he turned it into an event. It wasn't just who he was going to talk to, but the fact Wallace was doing the interview mm. uh, was part of the, the appeal for viewers. Mike Wallace is here. Documentary about the legendary CBS newsman. It's at the Landmark Theater in West L.A. John Horn talk with the director of the film, Avi Belkin. We have a link to that conversation on our Film Week page. Uh, the French drama At War stars Vincent Lindon. Uh, Stéphane Brise is the director and co-screenwriter. Tim? Uh, let's see. Shades Shades of uh, Norma Ray of Martin Ritt, Norma Ray here. This, this is a movie. Uh, we come into this movie and there is already a struggle between this German company that's going to be shutting down this factory in this small uh, town in this province of France. And the workers are at at strike now they've already we they've already given up all sorts of things to this company but this company simply will so vincent is leading this group of workers uh again shades of norma ray uh shades of the dardan brothers uh two days one night that kind of thing except for this is a even more piercing film this film is angry uh you, you can kind of see where that yellow vest movement came from in france in in, in what's going on in this film these people are angry the workers though are also angry at each other so there's this infighting thing that's going on too uh, Vincent is the man at the center of this. This director, Stefan, uh, made a film called The Measure of a Man, which Vincent was also in about 2015 or so, where he played a blue-collar guy who just became unemployed. I feel like this is a sequel to that film almost as we follow this guy. There's a moment uh, so intense in, 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 in – um, there's a moment so intense in this movie that people ought to be forewarned. Forewarned. It is a very, very difficult moment because to watch. Because of the violence because in the scene? A, a particular kind of violence at the end. Be forewarned. Be forewarned. All right. At War, uh, the French film at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A., it's unrated. For Sama, a documentary, a British-U.S. co-production uh, that takes us to Aleppo, Syria. Um, Wad al-Khatib is the co-director of it with Edward Watts. Christy? There are so many excellent documentaries this week, and here is just Big one more of them. Yeah, this is devastating. This is so hard to watch and so heartbreaking and so inspiring. Wad is a, a mom, a wife, and a mom and a filmmaker. And it's hard enough to juggle all of that at once. She's also doing it in the middle of a war zone in Aleppo. And she steadfastly documents 
the uprising, the anguish, the carnage that she sees around her, um, all the while, you know, documenting it and surviving it and doing it to preserve it for her daughter. She is for Sama, it's for her daughter. And um, she wants her to know the kind of world that she's growing up in. She wants her to know what can be done to be more hopeful that this is not what life has to be like. And she has the, the wherewithal and the bravery to keep rolling no matter what explosions and bodies coming into the hospital. Her husband's a doctor. They spend a lot of time in the hospital, you know, triaging people who are coming in and she just keeps rolling and um, others, you know, they pass the baby off to each other to make sure that the baby is safe, but she just keeps on going through it all. I don't know how she does it, but we are better for it because we can witness it. Yeah. When we meet her, she's only 19 years old, very contemporary young lady off to Aleppo uh, to go to university. Uh, And all of this, this just begins then. It just begins then. So she's there from the beginning. Rolling that camera. Uh, we, we, we see when she falls in love. We see when she has that baby. We meet all of these characters, these people in this movie. And, you know, they don't all make it. They don't all make it. And she, and she documents that. And, man, it's just devastating. She is a, just an extraordinary person. For some of the documentary at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica, it's unrated. Uh, Let's go back. Rutger Hauer's famous monologue is Roy Batty, one of the final moments of Ridley Scott's classic Blade Runner from 1982. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Ten Houser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. The Dutch actor Rutger Hauer died earlier this week at the age of 75. Tim, just a quick word on Hauer. Uh, who I, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, way back in the day. The Blow of Heroes was the movie that I talked to him for. Loved, uh, look, we can go all the way back to Turkish Delight in those films. But I got to tell you, Rutger, uh, who was a gigantic man, was a lot of fun. He was one of the funniest people I ever met in my life. Hobo with a shotgun was only 2011. <laughs> uh, and he kills it in that movie. He was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's the bad guy in that movie. He's <laughs> if you want to see him really good. He's in Nighthawks with Billy D. Williams. He's the bad guy in Nighthawks. We'll Billy continue Williams. on Film Week. One of the cast members of Boogie Nights, Nina Hartley's with us in just a few minutes. The Sound of Boogie Nights, Saturday night, our next Film Week screening, movie set in Los Angeles. Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, our film released in 1997. Great to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Boogie Nights, of course, with a wonderful ensemble cast, including Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, our recent guest on Film Week, John C. Riley, Don Cheadle, Heather Graham, and William H. Macy. The screening at 7 p.m. We'll have a conversation following. Tickets at kpcc.org slash in person. Remind you, the movie is 
is rated R. This isn't one to to bring the kids like the artist. The last one that we did. We hope you'll join us Saturday night, seven o'clock, theater at Ace Hotel, downtown Los Angeles. Also, an important part of the ensemble cast is Nina Hartley. She played the porn actress wife of William H Macy's character in Boogie Nights. She was already a veteran of adult movies and videos, having started in the business in 1984. Nina continues to perform and make personal appearances. She's often the person defending the adult industry on TV and radio talk shows or appearing at major American universities. Nina Hartley, good to have you with us on Film Week. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. It's exciting. I appreciate it. Well, let's go back to Boogie Nights and start with that. What was that experience like being on the set, working for Paul Thomas Anderson? It was Magical. I did not actually. My character was not a performer. She was just someone who had issues. <laughs> um, it. By then, I'd been in the business for fifteen years, and I recognized that oh, it's like a video shoot, but bigger. Instead of one or two days, we had fifty days. Instead of a catering table, there were like catering stands, and so it's a scale, 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 scale. Multiple production managers, multiple grips, multiple gaffers, as opposed to one guy doing everything. So it was just like being on a video set. But bigger. Well, and and you arrived with with the celebrity of working in a subgenre of adult entertainment. So you're known to many people, but it's not mainstream cinema at the same time. So how 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 do you sort of relate to that dual role of being known but not in the mainstream industry? Well, this is where my background in feminism, Buddhism, uh, nursing, and uh, women's studies helps me. I recognize that I'm part of a shadow industry. You know, obviously, sexuality as it is at once 100% universal and 100% personal, the two sides of the coin. So I know that people know who I am, but because of our culture's attitudes about sexuality, they can't always come out and say, oh, my gosh, I loved you in. So they'll sidle up and say, love your work, or are you on TV, or... I know you're from somewhere. And I always smile and I, and, I, and I know how they know me. And I'm happy for that because I'm, I couldn't be there in person if I sent the movies, right? There, for, me, for me, being in the movies was a valentine to all the people I would never actually get to meet. So I recognized that no one on the set was rude to me, but only Macy hung out with me because we were doing our parts together. No, um, the first day Wahlberg came up with his handler and, and said hello, and he was completely, you know, polite and professional. Burt Reynolds was very polite and professional, but nobody was personal. And most of them stayed away. Yeah. So you you did feel you were treated somewhat differently? Um, a little bit, uh, simply because of adult movies. Um, I know I wasn't part of any of the press junkets. Because of my work, no matter how much this person likes me, someone higher up is going, eh, no. And I, and I accept that that's, that's a fact, and I don't take it personally. Were, were you consulted uh, during the film sort of about authenticity? One and time I was. Um, one character, would she be saying, I'm going to go shave or I'm going to use a douche? And I said, in the 70s, nobody was shaving, so that leaves the other. <laughs> <laughs> the film gets back to this pivotal period when, it, when you move from um, filmed productions with a plot. Often people worked in mainstream mm-hmm. films would would moonlight in mm-hmm. adult cinema yes. and all of a sudden with home video it becomes uh you know the single camera shot on video quick cheap and does the film do you think get to that sort of of pivot point in the industry 
it it ends up there. We all have to understand that for his his research was great, his visuals were impeccable, but he was talking about a period before he was even born. I, I think he was even born in nineteen eighty or something. And we must always remember that it was a movie about a business made by Hollywood. Um, it makes too big of. I know the character of Wahlberg was was supposed to be you know. M- on John Holmes, model on John Holmes a little bit with a huge scandal um, for which Holmes went to jail. Uh, and But it didn't pay enough attention to the women in the business who really drive the business. And, of course, um, the biggest critique that you've been hearing for decades is that it exploits women and that and that women are objectified as a part of adult entertainment. And this is where you've, you've come out and you've really frequently been the spokesperson for the industry on that. I have um, commercial... Commercial media exploits people, and our culture, going back hundreds if not a thousand years, does seek to contain and control the expression of female sexuality through ownership and you know paternalism. So any time a woman is portrayed as overtly sexual, the assumption is she is being forced into it. She does not have agency. So never forget, whatever you see on the movie, it's a movie. It's a movie. And I know what I'm going to do on the set. And if I don't like that kind of scene, I don't let myself be hired. Get the woman who loves that kind of thing. Our culture is so still hidebound around issues of female sexual agency and that women are still victims of male desire. That that that's, We still believe sex is something men do to women as opposed to with women or that women might, God forbid, have desire of their own that might be a little different, and that's hard for people to accept. So for people who say that, you know, pornography objectifies women, advertising objectifies women, Hollywood objectifies women, Hollywood objectifies men, pornography objectifies men. It it reduces men to nothing more than a prop, and no one talks about their emotional health or their emotional well-being. So it's a broader conversation to be had. Pornography is easy because we're a puritanical country, and so we get stuck in the representations and not seeing the person behind it. We're talking with Nina Hartley, who began her uh, career in adult entertainment in 1984, and she continues to work in the business, personal appearances, uh, video entertainment as well, websites. The business has changed dramatically, and we'll talk about that as as we continue. Um, But I do wonder... In, in terms of the respect issue, do you feel like people who work in adult entertainment are treated any differently now than they were in decades past? Because with the Internet, of course, it's everywhere. I think it's a case-by-case uh, situation. Don't forget, the women who choose adult entertainment are adventuresome. They're independent. They are uh, thrill-seekers. They are they are you know vital young people who are like, I want I, – I, they want this. Um, and – people forget how fierce adult entertainment performers can be because we are our independent contractors, but we do have to negotiate our own our own deals. So depending on where you go, yes, there's lots of respect. My, our fans respect us. I, my fans are the best people. People who don't like what I do, no, they're not respectful. And if I wanted to cry myself to sleep, I could look at all the horrible things said about me on the internet by all kinds of people, but I don't. You were at the ability to make a very good living yes. without doing adult yes. entertainment. So one of the critiques is that not all young women or men have that opportunity. You did. Yes. Um, anybody who wants to go to school can go to school, certainly. Uh, but it's still... so. But. So why is consensual sex work somehow a worse job choice than fast food? Um, the pay is much better. 
Um, many women I know who are mothers love the flexibility in job hours, how much they get per hour, so it leaves them to have time off with their kids. So again, taking into account that individual women are making these choices. I don't like it when the blanket thing, all these poor women, all these terrible men. It's like I'm a person, an individual person, and some women come to adult entertainment. It's not the best place for them, and they do need to leave, and most of them do. Um, and it wasn't that pornography did anything wrong to them, but they made a choice that they may later regret, as anybody can. It does. It isn't, but it's not porn's fault that they made a, a, a choice that they later might think secondly about. Super complicated. So, yes, I, I am privileged. I'm a middle-class person. I'm a Caucasian. I pass as a femme. So I was able to, you know, leverage my appearance um, and willingness and my sexual uniqueness to, 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 to I, I am, I am, you know, an individual person. It's <laughs> all right. We're going to take a break. Sexual uniqueness. I like that. Nina Hartley with us, who since 1984 has been working in the adult entertainment industry. She's seen all the changes with technology uh, in taste that's come along with that. And she was a member of the cast of Boogie Nights, the film we're showing theater at Ace Hotel, downtown Los Angeles, Saturday night at seven o'clock tickets at K pcc.org slash in person. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Larry Mantle. Film Week screening series, movies set in L.A. And our next one, Saturday night, Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights tickets, kpcc.org slash in person. From the cast of Boogie Nights, Nina Hartley joins us, who's been in adult entertainment since 1984. So take us to the set uh, and and your experiences on the film. What's the favorite part of working on Boogie Nights? The favorite part of working on Boogie Nights honestly had to be acting with William H. Macy, who is the world's nicest man. He is a huge talent. He was respectfully treating me like an actual fellow performer. He did not treat me like, oh, some porn chick. So I was completely respected by him as a human, as a woman, as a performer, for which I'm very grateful. Um, he didn't. He wasn't squeamish. He didn't. He um, didn't, you know, treat me any differently, I think, now, than any he would any other performer. The most funny thing, though... Um, was the levels of modesty I had to go through. So at the end of the movie, uh, in the uh, scene where Macy comes in with the gun, um, they're squibs, you know, so people with the little squib guns hiding behind a piece of furniture, and they're in there, you have to time the shooting to the... So it's, it's all very complicated, that, that, that scene to like 15 takes. And after each one, I had to put on a robe, go back to makeup, get the squib marks taken off and come back. The squib mark, this is to portray the shooting. So so did this, you know, fake blood, take it off and and come back. And I keep, had had to remind myself, cover up, cover up. Because on my, and I know part of one of the reasons I was hired is that naked is my work uniform, but other people take it as confrontational if uh, I'm walking around nude. So grab a robe, grab a robe, grab a robe. (laughs) And I realize this is a straight film crew, and they do care, and it does matter, and it's not polite to put bring my culture into their culture. Uh, what about uh, you know, uh, any funny experiences that happened during the course of making this? Well, yeah. certainly. So in the in the driveway scene, of course, I am on my back, and the actor is on top of me with people, you know, standing around, looking down. I was in that position for two and a half hours. 
which is not like a regular movie, right? And they had a, a, a blanket underneath me, so I wasn't like on the concrete. But still, my right hip was like, hey, the single biggest question I get from everybody, were you really doing it on the driveway? It's like, absolutely, for two and a half hours. You bet I was. <laughs> um, so, of course, all sex in the movie simulated. Of course, it's Hollywood. But people, because I'm not a simulator normally, people have to ask, was it real? It's like, no, it was not real. Now, P.T. Anderson, he had done Hard Eight, a film yeah. I really liked a lot, but not a lot of people saw. Were you prepared for the attention this movie was going to get? Yes and no. Um, I knew he was an up-and-coming director, so I was going to get a lot of attention. Of course, 70s L.A., you can't you can't beat it. That disco scene was just beautifully shot. I mean, those long tracking shots. I mean, as a filmmaker, I really appreciate um, his style. I loved his directing style. So he just would come up and say, you know, try it this way. He was very, very polite and kind in his, in his notes that he gave. The, and honestly, I have a classic, a classic experience. If he had taken out one minute of the bad singing and 30 seconds of the face stomping, my entire part could have been included in the director's cut. And it was so and it made my character whole. It take, took me from being a cartoon character to being a more complex character with Macy it, it, to give a little backstory about why I am the way that I am. And I was sorry that that did not get in even the director's cut. Um, so I was like, it's his art. He gets to cut it however he wants yeah. to cut it. It's like, but I know I'm never going to get another chance in a movie. It's like, oh, darn. Um, oh, heck. <laughs> Well, so your your friends, um, when the movie came out, what was their response to seeing you, not just in a mainstream film, but a big, critically acclaimed mainstream um, film? I got a lot of positive. I got a lot of positive attention for it. I remember I got to go to the red carpet, but Heather Graham was the only only performer from the movie who would take a picture with me on the red carpet. Uh, and I again, I, I wasn't surprised. I'm not. I'm. I'm I, I know not to be. Um, insulted over that because I recognize that knowing me and how do you know me is hard. It's hard for people to accept, and it's okay. So their their view is that this would be harmful to their careers if if they're or photographed just, with you. Um, or just you know, ooh, you know her, ooh, because don't forget, for every person who thinks I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, you saved my marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Other people, I'm a plague bearer. I am a disgrace, and all the other negative things. So I never fault people for the belief system they've inherited from the culture because I recognize that I really am way out there in left field. How did you, as a girl growing up in Berkeley, you know, you get your college degree, go into nerd, how, how did you decide that this was the business for you? Um, I reckon I didn't have the word them, but I understand that I'm queer. Um, I pass as a straight person, um, and I've used that to my uh, great financial and personal benefit over, over, over time. I can, I can pass through, I pass through walls, but through different communities. And I was, we were the same age when Roe v. Wade was decided. And I wasn't even kissing boys at that time, but I understood at the core of my core that without full bodily autonomy, women cannot be equal with men, period, full stop. And that includes my sexual expression and my reproductive choices. If I don't have the right over my own body, I cannot be equal with men. And so I just knew that was really important. If I had been a normie like my sister, I would have just kept voting liberal and, 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 and have whatever private life I had. But it turns out I am exhibitionistic and I am a voyeuristic person. I'm a bisexual person. I am a, oh, okay. So for me, um, and, I, and I read work and I read all of those, those books and I recognized early on that Objectification isn't harmful. It's what people. It's what humans do. Any animals that mate by sex selection objectify. Why do rams have those horns? Because the lady sheep like it. 
So I just understand looking is part of what humans do in terms of do I cross the room and say hello to you or not. So I understood that I wasn't like other people. And stripping was actually the safe place to go, be exhibitionistic, not a bar with drunk people. No, you go to a club where there's rules and boundaries and bouncers. And so it was a completely safe environment. And that's where you started, that's was where in I started, San Francisco, San Francisco. And I recognize I really like sexual performance. And I understood then that men, again, this is the 80s, so men, terrible, bad men, poor women, bad men, poor women. And the men were just as ignorant of sex as the women were, and just as desperate for information, desperate for a bit of, of, of kindness and, and conversation from a woman who's not going to lead them on. So I recognize as a nurse, part of my job is patient education, role modeling, and, um, and advocacy. So I advocate for people's right to be sexually sane, sexually whole, and um, sexually safe. That's part of my job as a nurse. In our culture, sexuality is sick, and sick people need a nurse's care. Nurses are here to be compassionate, to be kind, to give you space to heal, to treat you nicely, touch you sweetly so that you can figure out what you need. And sex is such an important part of our individual identity. I want to help reduce sexual shame and sexual stigma and sexual pain and isolation. And I say, you know, I'm, I can't be everywhere, so I sent the movies. <laughs> you know, logistically speaking, I just can't be everywhere. You're, like, you're on a mission. I mean, it's very, yeah. it's very clear. Your work is mission-driven. It's not Thank just about personal Thank you for recognizing that, expression. Larry. It absolutely. I mean, yes, I'm yes, a personal expression, but absolutely a mission. Um, and I wanted to speak also f- about pornography and sex work from a place of practice, not theory, because in the aid is all theory. And for the next 30 years, all the academics talked about us, but they wouldn't talk to us. And I'm going to now conference going, over here, over here. And they're just looking at us like we're invisible. So, you know, my work is not done. But uh, I, it's been 36, 35 years now, which is just, and you've 35 yeah. years. Yeah, it's, it's funny because, yeah, the length of time is in parallel. Uh, we're about the same age. And Nina Hartley, it's been great to talk with you. Thank you so much for talking about your Boogie Nights experience as well as your career overall. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much, Larry, for having me. Yay, Thanks. film week. <laughs> Nina Hartley, who is one of the important uh, performers in Boogie Nights, Paul Thomas Anderson's 1997 classic film set, of course, in Los Angeles, as are all of our Film Week screen series movies Saturday night 7 o'clock historic theater days hotel downtown post film conversation as well get your tickets now kpcc.org slash in person I look forward to seeing you at the theater at Ace Hotel and from all of us at Film Week have a wonderful weekend